0: You're listening to Monster of the Week with Timothy from ProDM. And this is it. This is our final episode about demons. We've come a long way from the mains all the way up to the Balor. And I gotta be honest, as much shit as I've given the demons over the course of this series, I'm gonna abyss them. Oh god, that doesn't even make any sense. I'm sorry! So let me explain what happened. This is actually the second time I'm recording this episode. Something about the data file for the Demon episode got corrupted, and so I wasn't able to post it a couple of weeks ago. But thankfully, I am a few weeks ahead on Monster of the Week, so I was able to do the dinosaurs last week, and now I am re-recording the final Demons episode, so I apologize. It'll be out of order in the feed, but I will try to fix that if I can. And here we are, the much-anticipated final episode of the Demon series. You can find the demons on page 53 of the 5th edition Monster Manual. Today we are covering the final 3 demons presented in the Monster Manual. Those are the Merilith, the Goristro, and of course, the Balor. Like our previous demon episodes, we're going to do this one demon at a time, and that means we are starting with the Merilith. The Merolith appears as a sort of six-armed humanoid woman uh, whose lower body is a snake. I always get the Merolith confused with the Yuanti abomination. They always feel like they should be a type of Yuwante, but they are technically a demon. They are described as being cunning and tactical, often leading hosts of demons, which kind of seems like an oxymoron considering how impossible to lead the demons are. They are a CR16 Large Fiend. They've got great stats, great saves, normal demon resistances. They have true sight. They have Telepathy 120 feet. They have Magic Resistance. They have Magic Weapons. They have a cool power called Reactive that lets them take multiple reactions. They have seven attacks, six arms and one tail attack. The tail can grapple. They can also teleport as an action, and they have Parry as a reaction that lets them add plus five to their AC against an attack. So that's the Merilith. Like I say, I always get them confused with the yuan but they're actually a pretty fun monster. Now, the Merilith first appears in the first edition Monster Manual, and like a lot of other powerful demons, it also has a suite of kind of random magical abilities. It's got Darkness, Levitate, Charm Person, Polymorph. It also says that they prefer sacrifices of powerful warriors, which I think is like a cool note, and something I wish we knew about the other kinds of demons. You know, what does a Hezrau prefer for a sacrifice? What does a Baylor prefer? That kind of thing. In 2nd edition, they emphasize that the Merolith is a tactician, but they have this impossible task of, like, corralling all of the demons to do whatever they need them to do. In 3rd edition, they retain the kind of massive pile of spell-like abilities, things like Chaos, Hammer, Levitate. But in 4th edition, they are basically all swords. They have no other magic powers, it's just tons of sort of sword-wielding powers, which is largely retained here in 5e, with the exception of, like, the Teleport. Now, I think that the fact that it has seven attacks is actually pretty baller. This is the kind of thing you wouldn't normally see in something like 4th edition, where they were very concerned about how many actions and how many attacks a monster can take. I like creatures like the Hydra or the Chimera or the Merilith that have a number of attacks equal to the obvious number of attacks that they would have, right? You could pretty easily say that, oh, the Merolith makes three attacks and can parry three times, but no, it makes six attacks and can parry as many times as it wants to. I think the downside to the Marilith is that while the sword attacks are cool, they do end up feeling kind of bland. It doesn't feel particularly demonic. What's more, the notion of them as like a beleaguered tactician is cool, but they don't have anything to suggest that they're anything more than just like a sword fighter. Like running a Marilith with a bunch of demonic underlings seems cool, but there's no synergy here between their supposed purpose and their mechanics and as we know that is always a problem for me so my proposed fix for the merilith i love the seven attacks i love reactive i think parry is fine i would also maybe give them a reaction where they could command a demon either to move them or make an extra attack. And as a balancing factor, it might be kind of fun if there was a chance of it failing. There's like a 50% chance that whenever the Marilith does this thing, that the demon doesn't listen, right? Or does something else or does something random because, you know, they're demons, they're creatures of pure chaos. So there's something kind of fun about the idea of like an imperfect power that doesn't always work because there are plenty of instances where the Marilith won't need to use their reaction to parry, right? It could almost be like a legendary action in between each initiative turn The Merilith can attempt to maneuver or command a demon, and there's a 50% chance that it just fails because the demon doesn't listen to them. That seems fun and interesting and keeps the stakes up the whole time. Great, and that is the Merilith, the first of this episode's three demons. Next up, we're going to be talking about what might be my favorite demon, at least on concept, and that is the Goristro, coming up next. The Goristro is described as a fiendish minotaur, as large as an elephant, that are basically living siege weapons. They are a CR 17 huge fiend, one of the first huge fiends we've seen so far, They've got a 40 foot speed. Now they've got good strength and good con, but bad or average everything else, which is pretty unusual for a monster at this CR. It's really cool to see their low intelligence, especially. They've got good saves, they've got normal demon resistances, but they've got no true sight or telepathy, which kinda makes sense if they're not very if they're not particularly magical. They have a charge power that deals extra damage, pushes, and knocks prone. They've got Labyrinthine Recall, of course, because they're basically a Minotaur. They have magic resistance, Siege Monster, and then they've got multi attack with fist, hoof, and gore. And that's the Goristro. They're very simple mechanically, but I gotta say the idea of like a big, destructive brute is really what I imagine when I think of a demon. So there's something like the Goristro to me seems like the demon perfected. Obviously the Baylor is sort of the overlord of the demons, but a lot of these other demons are very intelligent when all they seemingly want to do is obliterate and destroy. Which I think is a little bit strange, and I'm happy to see the Goristro is just a wrecking ball. Now, unlike the rest of the demons in this episode, the Goristro actually originates from Dragon Magazine, uh, issue number 91, uh, in an article called The Goristro Revealed. I guess that they had reference to Goristro in the monster manual, but hadn't actually depicted one. They also make a special point in the article that Garistro often serve more powerful demons, usually demon lords, and that they often carry an emblem or a badge, sometimes even a brand on their body, uh, indicating which demon lord they serve, which is like a cool piece of flavor that might be fun to see. Second edition introduces the idea of the Goristro platform, which is basically like uh, a harness that the Goristro wears that turns it into a siege tower, where it's got other demons, you know, who are using it like a a weapons platform, maybe even a catapult on its back. Very cool, very flavorful, something that I honestly miss in 5e. In third edition, they appear in the Manual of the Planes, and they have like a shockwave-style stomp attack, which is pretty cool, but they also can like throw rocks giant style, which is neat, but a little bit niche. 4E was basically the same, they kept the stomp and the charge power, we now see in 5E, but they actually got more powerful when bloodied, sort of like a frenzy situation. And that brings us to the Garistro in 5E. I gotta say, my favorite thing about this monster is just the concept. I think a big, dumb, flesh-eating, wrecking ball, siege engine monster is exactly what I imagine when I think of summoning a demon, Obviously, this is an enormous version of one. It's almost like a demon kaiju. I think it's the closest on concept to what I picture. Maybe tied with the Barul Gura for just like a big, swinging, bloodthirsty brute. All it wants to do is smash and kill, and that is exactly how I think demons are best personified. Now, of course, the main drawback is that it is a little bit boring to run. There's nothing particularly interesting in its mechanics. Just because it's a big brute doesn't necessarily mean it has to be boring i feel like beyond multi-attack and that again charge power there's not a lot going on here i feel like they could give the goristro a little bit more like maybe maneuverability or even even a, a dimensionality like in fourth edition with a frenzy power something like that to say that like there's some stakes at different points it isn't just an enormous bag of hit points that you slowly chip away I think the solution, though, rather than giving them a frenzy, which we've already given to the Glabrezu, is to give them that siege tower. Like, maybe as a sidebar, you design, this is what a siege Garistro looks like, right? It it describes how the harness works and how many demons you could expect to be clambering around. I'm trying to think, what's, like, a good demon to be operating it? Obviously, you don't want something too low like a dretch, because I feel like a dretch isn't a threat for the kind of party that would be fighting against But it is 5th edition, so maybe, you know, a lower CR monster is better. My instinct is a Hezrao because they are so similar. And if we use the teleporting power we gave them in one of our previous streams, they would actually be great at sort of getting over walls and fortifications, right? So I would say design a sidebar that kind of mechanizes how the siege tower works, you know, including a number of Hezrao, including whatever weapons it might have. And then maybe you have a point about once the siege tower is destroyed or removed, that then it kind of goes berserk and it just doesn't have orders. You know, maybe the there's something about the siege tower that is mind controlling the Garistro, and once you destroy the tower or destroy the crystal or whatever, then the Garistro acts normally or goes on a rampage, right? And that is the Garistro, a very simple monster. But again, I gotta say, I think it executes the demon all the way to the hilt. Next up is the big boy, the big mammoth jamma of the abyss. It's the Balor coming up next. The Balor is the most powerful demon and they are sort of the overlords of the abyss. They have a classic Balrog look complete with, you know, big wings and horns and flaming whip mechanically the Baylor is a CR19 huge fiend which means that it is roughly the same size as a garistro but it's got great stats across the board great saves of course normal demon resistances it's got true sight and telepathy it has a death burst that deals 20 D6 damage on a failed save pretty nasty it's got a fire aura that burns anyone who starts their turn or attacks it I love that it's both. It's got magic resistance and, of course, magic weapons. It has multi-attack with this lightning longsword, which deals three times as much damage on a crit. Awesome ability. And then it has a whip, a fiery whip, that deals fire damage and then pulls you 25 feet closer. In addition, it also has teleport as an action. Now, the Baelor appears in the first edition Monster Manual, where it is said that there are only six that seem to exist. To me, this is a lot cooler than the kind of demon lore concept, that there are just these Baelors who are maybe sentient enough to kind of pull some strings in the Abyss, but still ruled by their, like, demonic appetites. I also love that there are six of them, right? The number of the beast! Their whips also are described as having many tails, in contrast to the kind of, like, Peter Jackson, Baylor look that I think you see in 5e. In both 1st edition and 2nd edition, they of course have this big pile of spell-like abilities you've come to expect from early demons. Now, 3E's Baylor looks surprisingly similar to 5E's one, um, but it does have a cool whip attack where it whips you and then drags you across its flaming body, which I can't decide if that's, like, cool or sort of horny, right? Like, <laughs> maybe a little bit of both. The sword in 3rd edition is also, for some reason, Vorpal. The lightning sword first appears in 4th edition, along with the kind of flaming aura that we now see in the 5E e version. I gotta say, I think of my favorite things about 5e's Baylor, it's gotta be that lightning sword. I love that it, for some reason, deals three times the crit damage. That's just cool and mean, and it just is... Because it's a fiend and it's better than you and it just gets to do three times the damage. Is it because it's lightning? I don't know. That's not like a power we've seen anywhere else. And it's cool that it's exclusively a Baylor thing. I actually don't hate the idea of that as like a condition maybe even associated with lightning. That lightning damage crits for three times as much. That's cool. But it's it was a, it was a fun thing to discover as I was reading the Baylor. I never knew that it did that. My drawback is that, like, I think the way they build up the Baelor, I was expecting something more powerful. You're telling me that the biggest, meanest fiend of the Abyss isn't a legendary monster? No legendary actions? No lair actions? The lore even talks about how they affect, they, like, are the ecology of the Abyss, that, like, a Baelor will shape the world around it. And it's like, well, then where are its regional effects? Like, you have a mechanic specifically designed to reflect that, Come on, if the Demi Lich gets them, then the Baylor should definitely get them. You know what I'm saying? Just a little underwhelming if you're expecting, like, all of these demons, here's all 12 of these demons, but here's the most powerful one, and it's basically just an enormous stack of hit points with a couple of special attacks. So my improvement would be that you need to give them, maybe not lair actions, but definitely legendary actions and regional effects. Ooh, you know what would be cool is you could say that if you encounter the Baylor in its lair, on the Abyss, it has lair actions. But if you encounter it on the material plane, these are the regional effects. Like the moment that a Baylor enters the material plane, it has this drastic effect on the surroundings. That's perfect to me. Yeah, again, playing into this idea of this is like the Lord of the Abyss, right? Plus, some legendary actions will just help them in their action economy problem, which they definitely have. The fire aura helps the action economy, definitely, because at least it's pumping out some damage on other people's turns. But this thing is CR 19. So the kinds of abilities that high-level wizards and clerics are going to be able to do to it, it's going to have to have some means to fight back. And legendary actions is a great way to get to that. And with that, that concludes our demon cycle. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week with our first episode about devils. So very much in contrast to the ultra-powerful Baylor, we'll be talking about the two or three weakest of the nine hells. But until then, thank you so much for listening. I'll abyss you. Happy adventuring. Oh, no, wait, shoot, I did abyss in the beginning. Oh, crap. Monster of the week is a pro DM production. You can follow us on Twitter at ProDM timothy If you like the show, please consider supporting us on patreon. Even one dollar a month gets you access to the redesigned monsters that we discuss here on the show. You can find us at patreon.com/proDM. You can catch those monster redesigned streams Thursdays at 2pm PST on our YouTube channel. The music used in this episode was Rainbow Ride and Waves by Azure Flux, used under an attribution, non-commercial, share-alike Creative Commons license. Check out their work at azureflux.bandcamp.com. Thanks for listening.